0: We'll look at each uh, verse here. At least the first 11 verses is all I want to focus on today. So, um, Matthew chapter 4. Then uh, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward... He was hungry. (laughs) Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only, him only you shall serve. (coughs) Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him or served him. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea uh, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. Preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they went. Or, excuse me. They brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon possessed, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee. Decapolis, from Decapolis and Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Father, I I pray that as we look at this uh, temptation of Jesus, that we would be filled with great joy at what we see here. Reminded again that there's nothing that's too hard for you. Lord, would you use your word to speak to us and to challenge us and to change us. Would you change us, please, Father? Make us more and more and more, your disciples, more reflective of the character of our Savior Jesus, more reflective of your character, of your goodness and your mercy your strength and loving kindness, of your patience and your peace, Lord. Because we know that you have brought us into your kingdom. You are the sovereign of the universe. And you have done all these things. So would you continue that great work in us, I pray. Please, Father, do it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I have this song going through my head over and over again. It's uh, like a, <laughs> a metal band song. This band called The Showdown. <laughs> I have an album called Temptation Come My Way. Uh, okay, so if you would uh, grab with me uh, James chapter 1. Uh, just put a finger there in James 1. And um, uh, and then 1 Corinthians 10. We'll look at those in addition to this uh, Matthew 4 text here. Uh, and, and I mean there'll be several a couple other places that we'll reference as well, but I wanted to um, to make sure that we included those specifically. So first 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 I mm-hmm. hope you guys can find First <clears throat> First Corinthians ten and then um, uh, <clears throat> James chapter one. It's the other <clears throat> 1 Corinthians (laughs) 1 Corinthians. The first line of Matthew chapter 4, can I just say, is real troubling to me. Like, it hurts my heart. Uh, We'll we'll read it again here in just a second. But it, it is just troublesome. I just don't like it. I hope it's okay for me to say that. If it's not, then too bad. Um, have you guys ever been tempted to do something that you knew was just not right? I know that's a dumb, right? It's one of those like questions that you ask, but there's no reason to ask such a question, right? It's nonsense to ask such a thing. Of course we have, right? We've all done things that we uh, should not have. Uh, We have uh, not only been tempted, but we have uh, succumbed to temptation, right? Temptation itself is not sin. To be tempted uh, toward something or or to something is not sin in itself. Uh, The sin comes when we Uh, give into that temptation. That's something that James is going to kind of work out for us in that James chapter one text that we'll look at in just a minute here. But uh, I want to let's back up. Look at Matthew chapter four real quickly. Verse one. Here's the troubling line. This is probably the most troubling line of this story to me. Uh, keep in mind what just happened, right? What was the last part of Matthew's story to us, that Matthew is rehearsing this story of King Jesus, the King of Israel, the son of Abraham, <laughs> you know, son of David, son of Abraham, right? Uh, the Messiah has come. The kingdom is at hand. That was John's message. Jesus is going to pick up the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? The kingdom of the heavens, the the, the one who rules the universe, right? Uh, he, he is God. And the king is here, right? So... Uh, The last thing that we saw was Jesus submitting himself to John the Baptist. Baptism, John was the prophet who was sent to anoint the next king of Israel, right? Every uh, legitimate king, at least the the first few legitimate kings of Israel, had been recognized by God's prophet, anointed with oil as a symbol of God's spirit being on them before they became king, okay? It happened to Saul, it happened to David uh, after him. Okay. In the same way, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus, right? Descended upon him in the form of a dove. And John, in, I believe it's Luke's gospel, it's recorded for us that John said, I wouldn't have known, like really known, except that the one who sent me into the wilderness to baptize people said, the one on whom you see the Spirit descending in the form of a dove, that's him. And then, of course, John's like, that's like my cuz, right? Because <laughs> their moms were cousins, right? Uh, so... Anyhow, and John knew that Jesus was different, even from the, whatever relationship he did have with him. We don't know what it was. John had spent time out in the desert baptizing people uh, for, for at least a particular season. Okay? So now the Messiah is essentially ordained, recognized by the prophet of God. God sends his prophet, uh, John the Baptist, who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. And he recognizes this as the king of Israel. Jesus. And then we see Jesus there being baptized. He comes up out of the water. The Holy Spirit descends on him, looking like a dove, in the form of a dove. And then God speaks. The heavens are opened somehow, and God speaks. There's an audible voice. It might sound weird to you and I. Uh, I've never heard God speak audibly. Uh, but there were numerous times throughout the scriptures where we find God speaking audibly from the heavens. One major one is actually at Mount Sinai. Before God actually gave Moses the writings, the tablets, God audibly spoke the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai. That's why everybody was terrified and they said, Moses, you should go up to see God because like we're afraid. Okay? So when Moses comes back down and they've made that golden calf under like the worship leader Aaron's, you know, tutelage, uh, just kidding, Uh, you know, Aaron's sort of left in charge there and... Uh, they made the golden calf, and Aaron is like, when he's talking to Moses, Aaron's like, I don't know what happened. They gave me their gold, and I threw it in the fire, and poof, out came this calf, you know. I mean, right, whatever. It was a, this was a common God that was worshipped and idol that was worshipped in Egypt. This is something they were familiar with. So um, that whole situation there, when Moses comes down and he gets super ticked at them. Because they've already broken the Ten Commandments. I know for years, I grew, up, I grew up in the church hearing these stories. And I remember thinking, why was God mad at them for breaking the Ten Commandments when Moses was holding the Ten Commandments, right? He's like got the stone tablets there. How'd they even know, right? That's because that nobody had actually just kind of run me through the text. And I hadn't done it myself. So I, I, didn't, I neglected to understand that God had already audibly spoken to them the commandments, and they had already broken them within that that first forty days, and forty nights. That's how long Moses was up there. That that time, right? And then Moses is take so he takes the stone tablets and throws them down and breaks the the tablets themselves uh, that uh, that had been written. But um, regardless, um, Jesus is now recognized in this sort of really really official way as the King of Israel and. Uh, by the prophet of God as the, the, the one that God has chosen, the anointed one, okay? So, uh, we hear this voice from heaven, or they heard this voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, the very next line is what troubles me, because as soon as the Spirit comes upon Jesus in the same way the Spirit had come upon those in the Old Testament, empowering them for ministry, readying them for public service. This is the beginning of Jesus' public service ministry time. We we don't know much about what happens in the life of Jesus before this. There's a couple other stories uh, that are recorded for us in Luke's gospel, but very little is recorded as far as the the, um, New Testament canon of Scripture is concerned. There are some other writings, uh, and there are reasons why those are not included in uh, the uh, Protestant New Testament. But um, regardless, um, this first line here, then verse 4, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness To be tempted by the devil. I just really don't like that. I just don't like it. Is that okay? The Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus, and then Jesus is led by the Spirit into the desert, into the wilderness, for a purpose. And what is the purpose? To be tested. You know, you think back to those other kings there was Saul. Saul had something of sort of a testing time period before he became king. Uh, David certainly had seasons that we might consider testing, right? Testing in the sense of, of their character being proven, being tested and revealed what kind of person they were what kind of person they are, think about Saul traveling after David time and time again, remember, and the, like, one time David's in the cave, I think it's the cave of Adullam, right, and Saul goes in there to, uh, like, relieve himself or to sleep or whatever, and uh, and David and his mighty men are already in the cave, and his mighty men are like, dude, David, God literally brought Saul here so that you could kill him, isn't this amazing? Like God has delivered him into your hands. This is the one who's been trying to murder us and chasing you down. Like he's he's jealous of you. And, and keep in mind, David is is Saul's son-in-law. I mean, all this this, this complicated relationship they have going on. And there used to be this this demonic spirit that would trouble King Saul, and then he hired David to come in and play some sweet tunes for him, and then the, this demonic spirit would leave while he was playing this music. I mean, this is. This crazy relationship they had. And then David goes and he cuts the corner of Saul's robe off. Right? And then later on he presents it to him and he's like, listen, Saul, I could have killed you. God delivered you into my hand, but I, I didn't. I spared you. And even that, the Bible says, even that, David was grieved in his heart that he'd even done that. He even laid his hand on God's anointed in that way. You know? So there was like a season sort of testing or proving of David's character. Um, was David perfect? <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely perfect, right? When he had, when he had Uriah murdered <laughs> and, and slept with his wife before that. <laughs> you know, he's a perfect guy, right? No, no, absolutely not. But um, it's one of the things I love about the scriptures, that God records such honesty about the people that he uses, the people that he works with, and uh, the patience that he demonstrates with us in our failures. It's a reminder to me that God can and indeed will use me or you, if you're willing, regardless of what, where you may have failed in the past. If you're willing uh, to allow him to work through your life in the lives of other people, if you see your life as a, a mission uh, for others, and God will use you um, for the benefit of other people. And for the sake of his kingdom. So, Jesus now is being led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is a, another reason why we know that temptation itself is not sin. For me to be tempted toward something is not in itself sin. Okay, And I think that's really important as it relates to something like... The uh, like uh, sexual temptation, right? Whether it's uh, heterosexual sexual temptation or desire or whether it's homosexual or some other type of uh, um, physical type of desire. And, and that's only one area. We'll talk about a couple other uh, types of areas. But the reality is that a temptation in of itself is not something that's sinful. The question is, where do we go from there, right? W- what do we do? What do we do with that when we are tempted? Um, And I want to talk about, we're going to talk about it in hopefully a number of different ways here uh, this morning. So um, look with me at the James passage. I asked you to grab James chapter one. Look with me at that really quickly. We'll kind of start there with this and then we'll go, uh, because James, I I feel like James really breaks down the, I don't know how to say it except to say the anatomy of temptation and sin. Does that make sense? Because James kind of separates them and says, you know, this is kind of how things play along. This is how it works out. Um. So, uh, James chapter 1 says this, uh, blessed is the man, this is verse 12, um, blessed is the man who endures temptation. Do you see that? Not the one who isn't tempted, but the one who, who perseveres through temptation, who endures temptation. Do you get that? Because every one of us, we still live in in this physical body, right? We still have, uh, I think as Paul described in Romans 7, the law of sin in our members, in our bodies. We can be indeed tempted in many different ways. Uh, And I want to talk about a lot of those in just a second, uh, or in just a couple minutes here. Blessed is the man. Oh, how happy (laughs) is the man who endures temptation right that means who goes through it and certainly the idea here is who doesn't fail who doesn't fall to the temptation it certainly seems to be uh, understood he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him let no one say when he is tempted I am tempted by God for God cannot be tempted by evil nor does he himself tempt anyone this isn't contradictory to what's happening in Jesus life right Jesus was driven into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted, but the temptation itself comes from where? comes from the evil one, right? comes from the devil, right? From Satan, from the deceiver. <clears throat> God himself cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone, but each one is tempted. Here's sort of the anatomy of temptation. This is how it works for every one of us. Uh, every human being, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away. That even that phrase by itself, "drawn away," is such a sad like. <laughs> drawn away, well, away from what? Away from the Lord. I, I think, in the simplest sense, right? Away from what is right, away from what is holy or pure or good. When we are drawn away, uh, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, here's where it becomes. The problem, right? The temptation itself isn't the issue. Then when desire has conceived, we give in to that desire, it gives birth to sin. Of course, he's using the language there of conception and and then birth, and I think that's very picturesque. It helps us to kind of grasp this whole idea, um, I think, very clearly. When desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it is full grown brings forth death the same thing that paul wrote in romans 3 that the wages of sin is death i said it before it's one of my favorite tweetable phrases don't do that i'm just kidding <laughs> when we choose to disobey god to sin when we choose sin we are playing russian roulette with a fully loaded revolver you always lose do you understand you always lose. There's no spinning the 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 chamber or whatever and hoping you find a, a place where, where you're not going where there's not gonna be death. There's going to be death every time there is sin involved. Because that is the payment for sin, the wage for sin. Right? When you go to work, you work forty hours, you expect your boss to pay you for at least forty hours, right? Then always work out that way, <laughs> but that's, what, that's typically our expectation, okay? <laughs> that's the payment that, we, that we've earned, okay? And the same is true, the same is true for sin. The wages of sin is death. That's what the, the, the payment um, for sin is death, okay? So James kind of breaks down the anatomy of um, temptation moving its way into sin by recognizing this idea that we're tempted when we're drawn away and enticed by our own desires. And I want to make sure that you understand that your desires, the things that maybe you find desirous that are temptations towards sin for you, they may very well be different for the, for me. The things that I find uh, as desirous or temptations for me towards sin, right? Maybe some different issue, some different type of thing. And this is why... This is why uh, issues of conscience must be left that way. They must be left to the conscience of the individual, right? Because we're all different. We all have different, different histories that play into why we desire certain things. We all grew up in different families. We were exposed to different things at different time periods in our lives, different types of sin and different other things. And I think it's foolish to think that there's no psychology involved there with why we desire the things that we do. I think it's just just ignorant, frankly. <clears throat> the question is not will we be tempted to disobey God? Will we ever be put to the test? Right? This idea of temptation is the word itself is the idea of putting something to the test to prove what it's made out of, to show its character. Um, Jesus was tempted we too will be tempted the question is not whether or not we'll be tempted it, it is only what do we do, <laughs> right? how, do we, how do we respond um, what do we do when we're tempted to disobey the Lord and I want to talk very, in, in just a little bit, I'm going to get very, very detailed with this. And I hope it's frightening to all of us. <laughs> Only in that, I, I, I'm a, my fear is that sometimes we just don't really consider it. Because we're really, really good at looking at everyone else's sinful struggles and judging them. Without examining ourselves and saying, first me, Lord, first me. Deal, deal with me, God with me what are the things that, that, that are in my life that are temptations and struggles and issues that, that you are wanting to deal with in me rather than wasting our time thinking about somebody else and how they are being tempted or fail or whatever um, and then thinking ourselves better than them because we don't fail in that way you know or we don't we aren't tempted in that way uh, maybe. Um, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. <laughs> It's just troubling to me. And one of the things that I love is that in two chapters from now, when Jesus says, hey, this is how you should pray, you know, part of that prayer is Jesus saying, don't lead us into temptation. In fact, deliver us from the evil one. You know how I know that Jesus knew that we needed to pray that? Because Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. We see him tempted here. If there was no actual temptation, if there was no desire in the life of Jesus for the things that Satan is offering here, if there's no actual desire in him for these things, then they are not temptations. Do you understand that? There has to be desire in him for these things. If they're not, then they aren't temptations. But they are indeed temptations. When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, this is one of those favorite, like, just plain old lines, afterward, he was hungry, (laughs) right? Can you imagine that? Fasting 40 days and 40 nights. He's out in the desert, he's fasting 40 days and 40 nights, and for some reason, after he he hasn't eaten anything for 40 days and 40 nights, for some reason, he's a little hungry, Right? And people have talked about the, the um, physiology behind this, the reality that if you do go without food that long, that you go for a time where you become very hungry, but then your body, it seems kind of adjust to the reality that you haven't had food. And so you, you become not so hungry again, or at least not as hungry. And they say when you hunger again after that, you're at the point of death. Listen, I have done well to fast for like a day. Right. I mean really like not have any food at all or candy for like a day. Okay. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) The Lord knows. (laughs) So I I can't I have no conception of what this is actually like. I just don't. And to be honest, I don't know anyone else who does. I just I don't know anybody else who has who is uh, done something like this. Okay. Um, he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights and afterward he's hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, he's not immediately identified you know, other than earlier saying the devil. The tempter came to him. He said, Jesus is going to call him by the other name later by Satan. But, um, the tempter came to him. He said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become breath. So put yourself there in the scene. Jesus hasn't eaten anything 40 days and 40 nights. He's hungry, possibly at the point of death. Physical death. And then Satan comes and says, listen, if you are if you're really God's son if all these prophecies, all these things about you and about, about who you are if all of this stuff is true just just tell these stones right here to turn into bread. Feed yourself. Now, to somebody that's really hungry, that is something I imagine that would be very enticing. And listen, and if you're able to actually do that, right? That's also another thing, right? Because like if I have fasted 40 days and 40 <laughs> nights and the devil comes to me and he's like, hey, Jason, uh, if you're really God's son, turn those stones into bread, I'm going to just be like, dude, I'm going to die because <laughs> I just can't do that right? but if you are the one who was with God at the beginning who through him all things were made that were made and by him holds all things together if that was who you were and are if you made everything out of nothing certainly you could turn these stones into bread but instead of and here's, here's where his resistance comes in Instead of putting his own physical desires above honoring his father, he submits himself to the word of God. And I think that's really important to say. It's not good enough for you to just be able to quote the Bible at somebody, or at Satan, or whatever, or even at your temptation. I've tried that times when I've been tempted. I've just quoted the Bible to it, and I still fell. <laughs> okay. It's not good enough to just say a Bible verse. The question is whether or not we are willing to submit ourselves to God in what he is saying. And Jesus here submits himself to the Father when he says to the devil, when he answers in verse 4, he answered and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, it's instructive to me that every response of Jesus in this text, in this passage, in the temptation, every one of them is from the law of Moses. Every one of them is from Torah. It's from the law, actually from the book of Deuteronomy, which is the second law, if you will. It's what Deuteronomy means. Moses, right before he dies, repeats all the instructions that God had given him earlier on in his life before the, at the beginning of the 40 years of wandering. Moses repeats everything again with a couple of additional instructions and things. He sort of sums things up and and, uh, clarifies and does things like that in Deuteronomy. And Jesus now isn't just quoting Deuteronomy, but by saying this, we find that he's submitting himself to this because God has said Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, I'm okay. That's the idea. I don't have to turn these stones into bread. God will provide for me. I can use my power. I can use what I have to make what I want. Or I can submit to the reality that the Father will provide for me. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, which is a striking phrase to any Jewish person who would refuse to have ever said the name of God. To read in the Psalms that God has magnified his word even above all his name. And to know that the Jews refused to even pronounce the name of God. They would simply write, Lord, Lord. Instead. And then that God has magnified his word above all his name. The psalmist writes. It's written man shall not live by bread alone by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. See, God knows that you need bread. Man shall not live by bread alone. Right. So make sure that you you are eating. Okay, (laughs) It's a normal part of human existence. But if, if, if our physical needs, our physical desires become more important to us than the word of God, then it's a problem. Than the commands of God, than what God has said. And this is something that um, we'll pick it up in just a few minutes here. Something that John writes about in First John when he talks about loving the world. <clears throat> Which we'll, we'll look at that in just a second. Because it kind of deals with all three of these things here that Jesus is tempted with. So his first temptation deals with a very natural normal body desire, right a fleshly desire. the word flesh or carnal means of the body right It deals with a very natural carnal desire, which is a desire for food. I really like to eat I, I, there 's this constant struggle between like my waistline and my food that I want to eat frankly I just I like to eat stuff. I like to eat good food it 's very tasty I also don 't like to exercise um, <laughs> just don't like it. Uh, so, something that uh, I, I try and be careful about sometimes. Um, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We, <coughs> we have to recognize that within our bodies, we have certain desires. And one of those is a very natural desire for food something that we have to have to live. <clears throat> we have other natural desires. <coughs> certainly a desire for rest, for sleep, for um, drink. Right? Those are all certainly natural desires. Um, others as well. Maybe we'll come back and talk about some of those shortly. But um, The next temptation is this. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and <coughs> set him on the, bless you, Bless you, bless you, bless you, bless you. (laughs) Good. (laughs) The devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Right at the top of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And now, this is amazing to me. The devil says, seems to say, Well, you want the word of God? Well, I'll give you the word of God. Here's some things that God has said. Use them to your advantage. Mm-hmm. For it is written. Now the devil quotes, "He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall uh, in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone." And that particular one is from Psalm uh, ninety-one. It is fascinating to me how frequently this happens. How frequently we can take the scriptures, we do take the scriptures, and we can make them supportive of whatever the thing is that we want for ourselves. And I think most of us are probably aware of the reality. There are a lot of people that are teaching the Bible or teaching people in churches, whether or not they're teaching the Bible maybe is questionable, but um, there are a lot of people that teach that you can use things that God has said to make yourself better, right? To to get more for yourself, for your own benefit. And they cut out verses, and they cut and paste, and they, they mix this with the other, and they take things out of their context. And they say, well, this is true for you. And I can't help but say, man, that sounds awfully similar to Jesus being tempted here. Listen, these things are true. He shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus could be confident that the angelic realm was protecting him. Absolutely true. But would he test God? Would he tempt the Lord? Would he put God to the test by being on the top of the temple and throwing himself down? And the temptation here is the same. Prove that you're really the son of God. Listen, if Jesus went up there on the top and threw himself off the temple and the angels came and rescued him, maybe he could say, well, I'm definitely the son of God. I'm proving it. I'm testing it. Because God said that he would protect me. Jesus' response. Again from uh, Deuteronomy. Jesus said to him, It is written, again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Do not put God to the test. Um, Israel had tempted... God. They had tested God. And God said that he would provide for them. They complained to Moses and others. They, they tested God very directly at the waters of Meribah, the waters of Masa. And many of them were judged <laughs> because of that, that test there. And this is hard because it's hard because it seems like many times people want to do this. They want to say, well, if you're really true, God, then I'm going to do this. And then I expect you to do whatever. And they presume upon God to to do some particular thing for them, to prove to them who he is. That's what's happening here. And it seems that obviously it is a temptation for Jesus. I want to know, for me, me, I want to know that God is with me. And this is even post hearing the Father speak from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I think in a lot of ways we don't fully grasp, maybe nor can we fully grasp, the humiliation of Jesus in in the incarnation, in the fact that God became man. And he humbled himself in some particular way that I, I... you know, we'll wrestle with that idea about what exactly that means and maybe never fully come to understand it because we're not him. God had promised to take care of his son. He shall give his angels charge over you, the scripture said. In their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone. Absolutely. But don't put God to the test. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Like, it's like, you know, saying, uh, there's sort of this, um, I think a lot of Calvinistic circles maybe use this phrase immortal until their work is done. I mean, it's actually thinking of an old hardcore band, <laughs> but, uh, saying like nothing can touch me. I'm immortal until the work that God has called me to on this earth is done. Let's say, okay, maybe that's true, but should you put God to the test? Should you get drunk and then go drive somewhere or act like a fool? Should you go run off a cliff just to test him? Maybe your work's done then, <laughs> right? If you, do, if you die, God's like, well, you're done. <laughs> That's it, buddy, right? <laughs> and yet sometimes uh, this is such a common thing. People say, people are like, well, I want to, I want to know. And so we try and put God to the test. Well, if God is real, then he will. Then he'll what? Who, who, are, who are you to demand? Who am I to demand that God does anything for me? <clears throat> to demand. The remarkable thing is that he's so patient and kind that he, he provides for us every day. He doesn't have to. He keeps you alive. He lets, he lets one traffic light and the person in front of you at the traffic light that you get mad at because they don't immediately go when it turns green. right? He lets that person delay your travel by like 15 seconds so that when you get to the next light 10 miles from there where somebody blows through a red light and you would have been there at that immediate time. But, but, but you never see that. You never, we, we don't know about those things. But life is so incredibly circumstantial. And who's in charge of that? Who ordains those things? The, the scriptures seem to declare to us that God is in charge, even of how the dice land when you roll them. The lot is cast into the lap, Solomon said, but its every decision is from the Lord. That ancient form of, uh, of rolling dice, if you would. We shouldn't put God to the test by demanding that he do something to prove himself to us. And Jesus submits himself here to this idea by not throwing himself off the pinnacle of the temple. <laughs> even though he could have. He had scriptural backing that God would provide for him. Satan even told him he had scriptural backing. That should, like, throw our, our antenna up, right? <laughs> throw some alarms. Up. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Satan's using the word of God? yes this is why it's so important for you and I to be reading our Bibles (laughs) and to be growing to help each each other mature in in the faith so that we're not like children tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine as Paul writes in the book of Ephesians there um This certainly deals with a very natural drive or desire to live, to be alive, to be protected and not hurt, this temptation. Throw yourself down, down God will take care of you. Right? Verse 8 says this, again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Here's the final temptation and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Um, the devil took him up. I mean, listen to the way that Matthew writes this. The devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Satan is a powerful being. These angels are mighty. <laughs> I don't know how else to, to think about them. They are remarkable creatures, man. And you read about some of the like seraphs or seraphim and Ezekiel, and you're like, whoa, man, these are weird. <laughs> these creatures that God made. <clears throat> The devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. You've got to understand that this was desirous to him, right? If these things are not something that's desirous to Jesus, then they're not temptations. Jesus was destined and is destined to be king, to be ruler of the universe and all the kingdoms of the world, right? Right? This is something that God is at work doing. Presently doing. Till he makes every enemy his footstool. So right? So footrest that he puts his feet on. All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. It's interesting to me that Jesus says, no, you don't have the power to do that. Paul refers to Satan as... Um, the God of this age. He refers to him in another place as the Prince of the Power of the Air, the one, who, the Spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. <clears throat> uh, in fact, John in First John says of Satan uh, that he um, that all the world lies under the sway of the wicked one. The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Now, those aren't exactly bright pictures. Of the world in which we live. That being said, if you spend much time reading the news, you can't possibly come away from, from reading what actually happens in the world, like really happens in the world. And not just in the world, but I think if we examine our own lives, sometimes it's real hard to have a bright picture of the world. <laughs> and rightly so, because the world is in rebellion to God and lies under the sway of the wicked one. The Bible explains exactly why this is true. People say, well, if God's real and if He's good, then why is the world such a mess? Because we have rejected Him. That's why. Even from the beginning. And we continually reject Him and His authority over us. We've made ourselves to be little gods. And we are poor rulers. Even of our own bodies. We are poor Rulers. So the world is made up in all of its governing and all of its governments with men who can't even rule their own lives. And yet they rule kingdoms, masses. (laughs) Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Jesus said to him, here's his response to the third tempt- temptation. Jesus said to him, away with you, Stan. <laughs> away with you, Satan. <laughs> away with you, Satan. For um, the word that means the accuser. Away with you, Satan. For it is written, he goes back to Deuteronomy, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Right. So Jesus' responses to all three of these temptations center around the law, center around Torah, they center around his submission to God, his submission to the Father. He overcomes the enemy by submitting to the will of God. And then in the end, simply says, away with you, Satan. And the last line is a oh, wonderful reprieve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. What's fascinating to me is that this is one of those lines that we just kind of gloss over. I've read this story like a bajillion times. and I remember several years ago when I was teaching through this, I remember sitting there thinking, I have never heard anybody actually tell me, or, or even remind me, or even paid attention to the fact that when the temptations were over, angels came and served Jesus. You know what? I'm pretty sure they brought some food. Some angel food cake. I imagine. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's such a good joke. Is <laughs> it wrong? Uh huh. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> okay. But do you realize that like the second temptation, the part of the truth that Satan threw at Jesus was he will give his angels charge over you. They will take care of you. The angels will provide for you. And Jesus, in refusing to prove, to test God, finds that exactly what the scriptures had said becomes true. The angels did come and protect him, minister to him, serve him. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that so cool? He resisted the temptation. The very thing that he was tempted with ends up happening. And he doesn't have to try and test God. But God keeps his word. This is always true for you. You don't have to put God to the test by being presumptuous or arrogant. Or trying to force God to do what you want in your way, in your time frame. But he will always keep his word to you. Always. He will keep his word. Because it is impossible for God to lie. It is outside of the realm of possibility for this infinite being to lie. This infinite being God to tell a lie. It is something that he is incapable of doing because of his nature. Because of what it means to be him. So the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Now it's been pointed out uh, in the past that in s- similar to these three uh, temptations that we have here, the food and um, throwing yourself down from the <laughs> pinnacle of the temple and then um, having all of the kingdoms of the world be given to you, similar to that reality uh, is like what uh, John says in um, 1 John 3. Uh, 3, if I remember correctly, and then grab it there. All that is in the world. Mm, sorry, First John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, he's going to describe everything that's in the world. The lust of the flesh, that's the lust of our bodies. Uh, The lust of the eyes, things that we see, wanting something that we see with our eyes, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, uh, no doubt contains within it this idea of preserving our lives, right? And of being great, right? The pride of life is something that we're all seemingly after. We've been taught, most of us, that grew up in... The '90s and 2000s, or '80s and '90s and 2000s, were taught that we were precious little snowflakes, and the world is our oyster, et cetera, et cetera, and we can be anything we want to be, et cetera. You know, but everybody doesn't get to do that. These were the three things that gave us. Right. right. Well, and that uh, that idea is um, that's something that. I want to get to is this the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those three things. Certainly Jesus' temptations dealt with those three things as well. All that is in the world. He was able to resist the temptations of Satan uh, that were thrown at him in regard to those things. Um, The lust of the flesh of our bodies. The lust of our eyes. What we see. Jesus saw the stones. He could have turned them to bread. He didn't turn them to bread. And the pride of life. Satan says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Now here's the thing that's fascinating to me. In that moment, if Satan had given him all the kingdoms of the world, he maybe would have had authority over all the kingdoms of the world for that time period. For that time. But God has something, the Father has something infinitely better planned for him. For all time. I I wonder at the things that we do that maybe are temporary. That are like short-sighted. We look at life in a very immediate kind of way. Well, if this happens, then this is bad. But we don't always necessarily see the eternal picture. In fact, most of the time we don't look beyond the immediacy of our circumstances and see that God may be at work doing something bigger than just this sickness that I'm enduring or this trouble that I'm facing in my body or, or maybe with my marriage or my kids or whatever. We, we fail at times to see beyond that. And to see that God is greater than those things, and that maybe he's doing something else, something bigger or grander than that. Um, these three areas, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, uh, these three particular things, as, as uh, was mentioned, are similar to the temptations that uh, Adam and Eve faced in the Garden of Eden. And this is one of the things I think is wonderful about this story. right? So... Uh, we find um, when Adam or when Adam and Eve look at the fruit particularly Eve as the story goes when she looks at this fruit on this tree and and you can't I'm going to hopefully I I know that it's like please be patient with me we'll be done in just a couple minutes Um, she saw that the tree was the fruit was desirous And it was good for food, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the body, the flesh. And it was desirable to make one wise. She could be like God. At least that's what the deception was. right? Knowing good from evil. (sighs) The pride of life. All three of the same things. And she was tempted and Adam uh, also was tempted. Eve was deceived in that. The idea of deception is that she didn't fully understand what was going on. Adam did, and Adam still ate of that fruit. That's why the fall of man is placed on Adam's shoulders, not on Eve's. But what's think about these two stories? This is what's wonderful about Paul referring to Jesus as the the last Adam. So the first Adam, all of these things. Happened, and and Adam fails, Adam falls, and all of humanity is plunged into death, essentially. And then the last Adam comes to redeem, to rescue. The quality of what he does is so much greater than what happened with the first Adam. And it's fascinating to me. Think Think about what's happening there in those scenes. The first Adam is in this luscious, beautiful garden, the garden of God, where there is no death, there's nothing bad, and there's all of this fruit, there's all of this stuff for him to eat, and there's one tree that he can't eat from. One thing. And he fails. But the last Adam is out in the wilderness and he hasn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. Tired and hungry, no doubt. Parched by the burning sun. And he succeeds (laughs) to overcome the temptation. Do, Do you get the contrast of these two stories? The first Adam, the first man fails. The last Adam is victorious over the temptations of the devil. I don't... This is not something that just so happened. This is on purpose, you guys. This is absolutely on purpose. That these two stories are contrasted the way that they are in the scriptures. When you set them beside each other, you see how in Adam all die, but in Christ, all who are in him find life. And nice wanted to get there uh, I just want to read it at least this is the last thing that we'll read First Corinthians chapter 10 we'll read this see because overcoming our temptations is not is not about us just trying to work at it and get better and try harder and if you just and it's not about uh, psychological evaluations necessarily and trying to uh, deceive ourselves into being different than we are by some psychological manipulations okay Uh, I think that it's different than that. Biblically speaking, we are new creatures in our Messiah Jesus. We are a new creation. God has taken out our our old heart of stone. He's put in us a heart of flesh. He says in Jeremiah 31 that he writes his will, his law, in our minds and in our hearts now for those who belong to him. So um, we find here in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 10, uh, these... um, These reminders. Um, i I'll just we'll pick up in verse twelve. The, the beginning part is really good too. We'll pick up in verse twelve. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. This, we should be humble, right? Not thinking that we in ourselves are so great we can overcome uh, any temptation or sin. But, um, take heed lest he fall. Verse thirteen says, "No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man." But God is faithful. All the temptations you face are the same ones that humanity faces. There's such as is common to all people, to humanity, right? To man. Uh, But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, not just so that you can, um, you know, not so that it will disappear. Let me say it that way. He doesn't always remove temptations from us. But he makes a way of escape so that we may be able to endure it, bear it. Right? That's the thing that's being referenced there. And I also wanted to mention to you in Hebrews chapter 2, it's spoken of, and in Hebrews chapter 4, uh, we find um, some statements about Jesus as he is the the uh, captain of our salvation. Um, Uh, both Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 talk about Jesus being able to give us comfort and rest and strength when we are tempted because He knows what it's like to be tempted. Okay, um, that sort of uh, is a quick summary here, but uh, I'm, I'm discerning at the time. So um, here's the whole deal You are the temple of God's Spirit, Jesus lives in in you, dear saints, and through you by His Spirit, you can overcome the temptations of the world, because He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And let me make sure that we're clear about this. I'm not only talking about, like, physical desires, like um, being a jerk to people because we're hungry, right? (laughs) We call it being hangry, and we're like, oh, it's fine. Is it okay for us to mistreat people because we're hungry? Like, is that really actually something that we've come to just say is fine? And, and please don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about just like, you know, some small slight. Sometimes I can be a real jerk. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Not Brian, though. No. He's fine. He's good. <laughs> right. so, so, so uh, okay, I'm, I'm talking about where we actually and, and I'm thinking about it in the context of like the way that I treat my kids sometimes because it really sucks. It just is really not right. Sometimes I mess up in, in the way that I talk to them and the attitude with which I deal with them. Sometimes I'm far too impatient with them when I should be giving them more grace. They're just little kids, you know. Um, God is gracious with me and I'm an old man. Um, Middle-aged, partially aged man. I don't know. Um, (laughs) um, Okay, so he is able to help you and he also understands what it's like to be tempted. So here's here's a couple of questions that I want you to think through. Here's what I want to leave you with is this reality that, that um, because Jesus lives in you and through you, you and I can overcome temptations. But, but think about what the, the, the flesh is. Think about what the desires of the flesh are. They're not just um, like sexual desires. Those can be one thing, right? People, uh, matter of fact, I'm pretty sure, I, I don't know of a single person in their 30s, man at least in their 30s, that hasn't struggled with pornography or some other issue like that. Related to that, right? So, so that is such a huge thing and can be such a big deal. Okay, um, but but think about it in other sins of the flesh. What about envy? What about when you see something that somebody else has, and you just want it? And and it's hard. I'm talking about something that's hard. That's like what if we're talking about like the fact that. I'm sick and I see somebody that's not sick and I want that, right? But then how do I respond to that temptation? How do I deal with that? Do I do I then mistreat people? Do I do I refuse to act in love because I'm so envious of what somebody else has? I think about I mean maybe maybe you know most of us are able to walk I think uh <laughs> Uh I have some friends that are really good at skateboarding. I wish I could still skate like I used to be able to. Um but uh, and, and I know those are those are small things, but um I want you to ask the Lord to examine your heart. What about what about jealousy? What about what about greed or pride where you refuse to humble yourself? Let's say you're having an, a disagreement, or a, excuse me, a conversation with your spouse, and you refuse to humble yourself. And I, And what I'm saying is that Jesus lives in you and, and lives through you, and He's able to help you in all of those moments, to overcome the temptation. What about wrath? Are there areas in your life, in my heart, where we're holding on to anger at people or circumstances, where we're, not, where we're f- refusing to forgive and let people go from the prison that we hold them in in our hearts ultimately we hold ourselves in? I'm saying, Lord, would you please change us? Would you set us free? Set us free, Jesus. There's like so many more things I wanted to say. We, we, we got to finish. Uh, Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for sending the last Adam who overcomes the wicked one. <laughs> and for, for you, Jesus, not leaving us orphans, but coming to us by the power of your spirit. Help us to live in this reality that we are your people and you are our God. And that as you overcame Satan then, so too you are able to overcome the temptations that